The Guardian. In the northwest of Brazil, the rainforest city of Manaus sits remote, alongside the Negro River as it flows into the Amazon and on into the Atlantic Ocean. Flying into Manaus is a wonderful experience because you just, I mean, the plane comes really low over the canopy of the trees. You sort of wonder, the first time you land there, where, where the plane might actually land. Manaus is a very long way from the rest of Brazil. It is the biggest city in the Brazilian Amazon and the South American Amazon. It's a city of about two, two point something million people. There is some spectacular historic architecture there, a gorgeous opera house that was built back then. And now it's a sort of charming, bustling, slightly run down in parts, uh, very humid uh, rainforest city, which is surrounded on all sides by jungle. Unfortunately, for much of the past year, Manaus has been in crisis, as COVID-19 has rampaged through the city. Our Latin America correspondent, Tom Phillips, has been following the situation there. Manaus was one of the Latin American cities that was hit first by coronavirus. And it started making big headlines last April when we started noticing, not actually through official figures, but through what was going on in the graveyards there, that there was a real problem. The situation got so bad that authorities started using diggers to, to carve mass graves at the cemetery into which coffins were piled one upon the other. And then in June, things seemed to settle and those numbers fell away as the epidemic spread to other parts of Brazil. Despite suggestions from scientists and then politicians that there might be herd immunity, cases began to creep up once again. By mid-September, you've got epidemiologists uh, in Manaus, not all of them, but some saying that we really need another lockdown. We are walking back into another disaster, a second, second big tragedy in less than a year. One epidemiologist I've been, I've been speaking to, he has been calling in these weekly bulletins since mid-September for those kinds of containment measures to be introduced, and that did not happen, much to his despair. Then, just before Christmas, when specialists in Manaus and across Brazil, actually, were warning that because of the Christmas festivities and the end of year, New Year's parties, there would be lots of family get-togethers and parties and life was returning to normal, that this would be a disaster. There was an attempt just before Christmas to get a lockdown in place in Manaus. That was scrapped because of street protests, which were egged on by supporters of Brazil's uh, president, including one of his sons. And the result was that in the first week of January, there was what one epidemiologist I spoke to, they calls a pico explosivo, an explosive peak. And the hospital system collapsed. The number of deaths and infections just shot up the hospitals, public and private, ran out of oxygen. And you had absolutely horrendous scenes of desperate relatives trying to find oxygen canisters for their loved ones, racing them into hospitals. We, we heard and then saw images of medics performing manual ventilation on patients on hospital beds and on the floor to keep those people alive. In part, the ongoing emergency has been due to Brazil's response to the pandemic. There have been over 9 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the country. And according to academics, the federal government's denial of science has led to an absence of public health measures, no national plan to combat the pandemic, and inadequate financial and medical aid. 
Brazil government has taken a really perplexing um, and I think unexpected stance towards the pandemic since we had the first cases here last February. The president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, from the from the outset pretty much played down the dangers of coronavirus. He called it a gripezinha, a little flu. He shunned masks, he egged on protests, he went to meet his supporters in the streets, even as the numbers of infections and deaths went up and up and up. Brazil now has the second highest official death toll in the world, with well over 200,000 deaths. And we are moving into what looks to be a particularly painful second wave, with really, really dire scenes coming out of the Amazon. Um, and yet, despite all of this, and despite all of the, the evidence pointing to a really you know, rocky path ahead, Bolsonaro has continued with the denialism. Just a few weeks ago, he said, oh, you know, we're nearly at the end of this thing, the pandemic is nearly over. And then just a few days later, you see scenes of absolute chaos in the Amazon. Yet, for epidemiologists, what has happened in Manaus raises a very serious question. If the infection rates were so high in the first wave, why has the city been so badly hit by a second? And what could it tell us about immunity, new viral variants, and how we can finally come through the pandemic? It makes it very clear that we can't rely on our perceptions of, of what this virus is and what it can do. It's a cautionary tale that many other countries need to look at and think carefully about their strategies because there is no way to live with this virus. I'm Sarah Bosley, and this is Science Weekly. To explore what might be behind Manaus's terrible second wave of infections, I spoke to clinical epidemiologist and senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London, Dr. Deepti Gurdasani. Manaus is an example of a largely unmitigated pandemic. So it's what happens when minimal uh, interventions are in place. And what we saw during the first wave was large swathes of the population got infected. So it's estimated that by October last year, that's 2020, about 76% of the population had been exposed and infected by the virus at some point in time. Of course, we have to remember that these are estimates in that these were estimated from the prevalence of antibodies among people who had donated blood. And we know that antibodies wane over time. So the results from the tests were corrected for this waning over time, as well as the low sensitivity of these tests, because we know that they don't capture infection in 100% of people who are tested. Um, having said that, it was healthy blood donors, which might not be representative of the general population. But because we're testing for antibodies, the tests are reliable enough themselves. You know, we're not looking at infection directly here, we're looking at exposure in the past. So now Manaus, as if it hadn't suffered enough, is seeing this huge second wave, even though at those levels of prior infection, we might expect some kind of herd immunity. Can you think why this might be? Yes, I mean, this is a question I think that's concerning many people in epidemiology and public health. I think there are a number of reasons. One of the reasons might be that the estimate of 76% is not really representative and it's overestimated. While that is possible, it is very likely, even from the direct estimates we have in the study, that the majority of the population has been infected. So it is rather surprising to see the surges and in infections we're seeing at the moment. 
The other reasons could be that uh, we know that there is a new variant in Manaus, which is potentially more transmissible. It shares some of the mutations, for example, with the UK variant and the so-called South Africa variant that are also more transmissible. When a, a virus is more transmissible, the herd immunity threshold becomes higher. So it could be that the herd immunity threshold is higher than 76%. And that could be the reason why um, people are still getting infected and the R number is still well above one. The other reason could be that immunity through natural infection may not be as long-lasting as we think. So although 76% of people may have been exposed, not all of them will be immune to disease. So it could be that we haven't reached the herd immunity threshold uh, simply because people who've been exposed haven't been fully immune. The third reason could be that the new variant uh, in Manaus, which again shares another particular mutation with uh, the so-called South Africa variant, has been associated with escape from antibodies directed at the previous variant. This is really important because it suggests that potentially the virus could escape immune response directed at the previous variant, which means that people may be more likely, for example, to get reinfected because people who were previously, I guess, immune may no longer be immune to this variant. So it's sort of like the virus finding a new population that's more susceptible. Of course, all of this is conjecture. We don't really know what the reason is, but I think all of these need to be considered. And we need to urgently study this because this will tell us a lot about what lies in the future for many other countries, potentially. You said that the antibodies from the previous infection may possibly not be working now because you've got this escape going on. Is it possible at all that the protection from those antibodies has faded away in the fairly short space of time, actually, since that epidemic was at its height in October? That's certainly possible. If we look at reinfection, uh, certainly there have been few reinfections reported across the world, but we need to remember that reinfection is only confirmed when we actually have virus sequence uh, recorded in people at two different points in time, and we're able to show that that virus is distinct. Let's remember that most people who may have reinfection are likely, first of all, not to have been tested in the first wave and are very unlikely to have whole sequence of virus to compare. So we need to remember that the reinfections that we document are very much the tip of the iceberg. If we look at reinfection, uh, studies of reinfection within the UK, for example, in healthcare workers, we find that even those who were exposed to the virus or infected with virus previously can get reinfected, although they get reinfected less frequently than people who were not exposed at all, there is still a risk of reinfection. So immunity does wane over time, at least in some people. And it's very clear that, you know, there's not complete protection conferred to everyone who's infected. So it is possible that people who were infected in the first wave did not have lasting immunity over a period of uh, six months and could have been reinfected again, even with the same virus variant. Of course, now that we're talking about a different variant, it's also possible that even if they were immune to the previous variant of virus, they may not have been immune to the new variant of virus. Can you tell us a little bit about the new variant in Manaus? What do we know about it in terms of what the mutations are? And is it typical of the variant we've seen in Brazil or is it more like the South African one, for instance? So the variant in Manaus has arisen independently of variants in other parts of the world, but it does have mutations common both with the so-called UK variant and the South Africa variant. It is distinct from uh, the Brazil variant in that it has the 
E484K mutation dominant. And this is a particular mutation we've been quite concerned about and has been associated with escape from antibodies, at least in the laboratory, directed towards a previous variant of virus. This particular variant is not neutralized as well with antibodies from people who were infected with uh, the previous strain of virus during the first wave. And that's concerning on many levels because it could mean, for example, that people uh, who have been infected before are still susceptible to this new virus strain because their immune response doesn't sufficiently neutralize it. It also raises questions about vaccine effectiveness, which are being studied quite actively at the moment. What we're seeing here is essentially the virus evolving in many different parts of the world, but with mutations that are very similar. And this happens when the virus is adapting and these mutations are likely to be favorable to the virus, which is why we're seeing them popping up again and again. But it's very clear that the path to the mutation has been different and distinct in different parts of the world. The fact that this high level of natural immunity doesn't seem to have actually given the city much protection against the second wave, what does that tell us about how countries should be moving forward themselves out of lockdowns and restrictions? I think it really highlights that we can't rely on herd immunity. We we certainly can't rely on herd immunity through natural infection and even in terms of relying on herd immunity through vaccines. We need to be careful because it's very clear that one, you know, the herd immunity threshold may be higher than we anticipated and might be difficult to reach even with vaccination of the entire population. And two, there is potential for virus adaptation. And as the virus adapts, herd immunity may not be relevant because it doesn't transfer over to new virus variants that can potentially escape immune response to previous variants. So I think we need to understand that to really get on top of this, the strategy we have to follow is really suppression of the virus in every way possible and elimination because unless we do that it's very likely that we'll have to live with the virus because it will become endemic and it's very likely that we will continue to see surges of the virus with its devastating consequences like the ones that are being seen in Manaus at the moment. People used to talk rather blithely about the prospect of herd immunity once enough people had been infected with this virus. Does the experience of Manaus actually entirely dismiss this idea now? I mean, it certainly shows, one, that the impact of trying to achieve herd immunity by natural infection has devastating consequences. If you just look at the number of deaths in Manaus per population, they're huge. So the costs of trying to achieve herd immunity in this way are very clear. But the second thing that it really brings up is that there is no guarantee that herd immunity will be achieved, even with these huge costs, even with large proportions of the population being exposed. So trying to achieve herd immunity in this way through natural infection was always a gamble. But it also tells us that we may not be able to rely on achieving herd immunity, even with uh, our vaccine resources. And we really need to look at other ways of eliminating the virus alongside vaccines. I do want to say that vaccines are a hugely important part of this. But given that we don't understand their effectiveness in terms of reducing infection and transmission, we cannot rely on them to actually eliminate or stop infection. Infection is likely to continue even as we roll out vaccination. We can't expect that we will eliminate this virus with vaccination alone within six months. That's just not a realistic strategy. What do you think we should be learning from what's happening in Manaus at the moment? We need to learn that the costs of unmitigated transmission are huge. And it's not just, you know, to the 
health of people, the number of deaths, the devastation to the economy, but it also means uh, that it allows adaptation of the virus and events such as the ones we've seen in Manaus, where now there's a new variant of virus that is potentially more transmissible and may be able to escape immune response. It makes it very clear that, you know, we can't rely on our perceptions of, of what this virus is and what it can do without evidence to really back that up. I mean, we've heard proponents of herd immunity for a long time talk about shielding or focused protection of vulnerable populations and letting this pandemic go through younger members of the population because that would achieve herd immunity and bring an end to the pandemic. That never happened in any part of the world. What we've consistently seen is that when transmission is allowed to spread at such a high rate, it always spreads from younger people to those who are via shielding with all the devastating impacts of that, which is hospitals being full, lots of people dying. And now, of course, we're seeing new virus adaptation as well, which is also a consequence of unmitigated transmission. It's a cautionary tale that many other countries need to look at and think carefully about their strategies because there is no way to live with this virus. We have to really focus on elimination. The countries that have done this have been able to protect their societies and their economies and are not having to deal with these new variants of virus that we don't really understand and are frankly quite concerning. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Dr. Deepti Gurdasani and Tom Phillips. If you want to hear more about what's happening in Brazil, Tom recently spoke to our sister podcast, Today in Focus, about the surge of infections there and why Brazilians are having to take matters into their own hands. We've put a link to that and to Tom's articles covering the crisis on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. That's it from us today. We'll be back on Thursday. Stay safe and see you then. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.